0: Welcome to Top Five, a show that we bring to you on a regular basis. And sometimes it is fascinating, and other times it is super fascinating. Of course, it is top five. This week on the show, top five movies we can't stop watching, or as I like to call it, my top five. I gotta be careful. These are my dangerous movies, because if I even pass by them accidentally, I will watch them. (laughs) So these are these are some. Uh, there's only probably one movie on my list that I've talked about before. I mean, I've probably talked about these movies before, but one of them is probably going to be pretty obvious to people. Uh, but the rest, I don't think I've really talked in depth about them a lot. But for me, at least when I'm scrolling down my movie list, whether it be on the Netflix or the Apple uh, movies or wherever else, If I'm not specifically looking for a movie, there'll be times where I'll pass by the thumbnail of the movie and I'll pause for a second and say, do I want to watch this or do I want to watch the other movie? And oftentimes I'll say, well, I'm going to watch this and not the other movie that I was planning on watching. So that's the topic this week, Rodrigo. And I'm very interested to find out what is on your list. So what do you have for number five?
1: Yeah. So uh, for my list. um. My, my day job is to take care of adults with disabilities and a lot of the time they watch TV and they watch what they want to watch. Right. Um, so my list this time around is, is really when these movies are put on, cause I can't control what the client watches mm-hmm. are these movies that I watch or movies where I go do something else or try to like read or, or, uh, you know do any of the other tasks that I uh, need to do. Um, so I, I thought this was helpful because um, I don't really watch, you know, over the air TV anymore. So things are rarely on, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, I do get like thumb thumbnail uh, snagged sometimes. So my number five is honey. I shrunk the kids. Mm. <laughs> um, it's a movie that as a kid, I'd really only seen once or twice um i was kind of upset at it when i was a kid because the intro is animated and then it turns into like a live action movie and i felt that that was like false advertisement (laughs) um but i've gone back and watched it actually a bunch of times now and i keep watching it not for the special effects or for the ants or the scorpion or whatever but actually because of the parents performance um really rick moranis and uh max headroom i think it's max headroom really uh kind of uh really have such a like a weird they're like such weird dads Mm -hmm. in like such different ways that they just really kind of um, make the movie anytime they're on screen. I just have to stop what I'm doing and, and watch
2: the movie. Nice. Yeah, it is. It's mad for Yeah.
0: Yep. Cool. All right. So honey, I shrunk the kids. Um, I'm wondering if uh, honey, I blew up the kids on, on the list.
1: Honey, I blew up the baby.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's, uh, let's, uh, get over to Matthew and see what Matthew has for his number five.
2: My number five is a huge problem for me because uh, unlike Steven, I don't necessarily choose to watch movies. And unlike Rodrigo, I do watch a lot of terrestrial television. So I actually have the premier cable package where I literally have like a hundred channels of movies and it's stupid. But, you know, it's also part and parcel of what I get and it's a thing that I do. So sometimes I'll just sit down and start flipping until I find something that pleases me. And my number five is a big, big problem for me for two reasons. One, it makes all the women in my house go, ah. Oh. But more importantly, it's 195 minutes long. Come back with me to the year 1997, when James Cameron tortured a bunch of people on a boat. And then made a movie out of it. In 1997, I said, I don't want to see this. I can't stand this. This is terrible. It's everywhere. It, it was It was something that I did not want to see. So when I accidentally did see my number five, Titanic, for the first time, I went, oh, this is actually pretty good. It's a very, you know, it's not necessarily a nuanced movie, but it's a very complex movie. It has a lot of cool things going in it. And um, for about the last two years, somebody somewhere always seems to be playing it on the weekends. So... As long as I get in late, like after the, the sex scene in the uh, the uh, you know underground area of the ship or the storage area, whatever you want to call it, the hold, mm. I'm good. Because at that point, there's about 60 minutes, and it's pretty solid. If I get in really early, like if I get in with uh, the old lady talking to her family, I'm done because that's the next three hours done, especially – If it's on a channel like IFC that plays commercials, which makes it a three and a half hour thing. But I just about can't switch past it because everything in it is really good. The performances are good. The special effects are good. All of the historical junk that's in there, you know, knowing what parts of it are really, really well done and what parts of it are just made up. Uh, Spoilers. Most of it's not made up, but the stuff that is made up is really heinous. And of course, Kathy Bates, and you put it all together, and it's a movie that i I literally will sit and I will watch. And I think I actually watched it two days in a row at one point because I saw the tail end on a Saturday. And then it was on again on Sunday. So I watched the first part Sunday, and then my brain, you know, was able to transpose it. But yeah, it drives my family crazy sometimes because they'll be like, "Do we want to watch a movie?" I'm like, I don't really have the brain power to watch a movie. Let's see what's on TV and they end up watching Titanic one more time because it doesn't take a lot of brain power once you've seen it 15 or 20 times.
0: All right, there you go. Uh, My number five uh, falls into the detective genre. Uh, It is Farewell, My Lovely, the 1975 movie with uh, Robert Mitchum based on the Raymond Chandler um, novel of the same name. I will tell you... I've seen people just say, oh, Murder, My Sweet from 1944 is so good. And it's like, well, if you enjoy Murder, My Sweet, you really ought to watch the superior version of the film called Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mission from 1975. What is fascinating about this is it came out a year after Chinatown. And I don't know if Chinatown influenced it a lot, but when you watch Chinatown, it feels like a movie of its time. It doesn't feel like a 1970s movie trying to portray a 1940s time period. Uh, it feels like. This could have been filmed in a 1940s, you know, the whole aesthetic feels 1940s. Farewell, My Lovely at times has a very 1940s aesthetic to it. But then there are times where it's like, no, this is the 1970s pretending like they're the 1940s. And so there's, you know, stuff that just looks like it's on a, you know, a 70s type movie set and that kind of stuff. Uh, So some of the aesthetic parts are not top notch. But the story is really good. This is the story uh, about um, uh, Philip Marlowe, who has been tasked to find this convict's girlfriend who has disappeared off the map. And uh, through the course of the film, he finds out who she actually is. He gets involved in a bunch of other uh, murders and other things that are going on. Uh, The thing that really surprised me when I watched this is that it has a lot of really adult themes. When you watch a lot of other detective novels or uh, detective movies, especially from the prior to the 70s, a lot of it's tamed down, right? I mean, occasionally you will get a dial-in for murder, which is kind of salacious. But this one definitely has drug use, prostitution, nudity, things that you don't typically think about in a Philip Marlowe or a Humphrey Bogart. Uh, type movie. Although, you know, one can talk about um, The Big Sleep and its various uh, edits of that. But if I scroll past this, this is one that I get very dangerously close every time to just saying, oh, I think I'm going to watch this again, just because it is such a different take on things that we've seen in the past of Raymond Chandler um, uh, adaptations. And I like this one a lot. It's really, really good. And if you're a fan of Robert Mitchum, I think this is one of his better performances, so go check it out. Farewell, my lovely, from nineteen seventy-five.
2: And if you're a fan of Charlotte Rampling, I don't think she's naked in this one,
0: but um, she gets really, pretty close. Really yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a it's a really good movie. It's got uh, some really. I just I think everything about this film is really nice, except for the aesthetic looks, a little bit more fake than what you might find in some other detective movies.
2: Yeah. The haircuts so. are very seventies. Yeah,
0: and cases. some of yeah, some of the some of the shot choices, and just in the lighting, it's very everything is overly lit. Whereas if you were to so if you were to compare like Chinatown and La Confidential and uh, the uh, what is it the Black Dahlia and some of those other films, and you kind of look at them from their aesthetic, they kind of have um, some. The key to fill ratio is, is not super uh, super high. Um, but in this one, it's like, let's just blast a lot of light at this scene and film it, and so that's that's my biggest complaint, so uh, there you go, uh, alright, let us move along to our number four and Rodrigo, what do you have for your number four?
1: Uh, my number four is uh, The Terminator <laughs> Nice um, Yeah, it's um, I've gone back and forth a lot in this movie, there's definitely a lot of times when I've watched it and I think, well, I wish they had done this differently or I wish they'd done this other thing differently. But um, since I end up watching the whole thing anyway, every time I'm like, I guess they're pretty spot on with everything. Um, You know, this movie was the cutting edge of technology of like visual technology when it came out. Now, a lot of its effects are seem pretty dated, but, you know, some of them actually really hold up. Mm -hmm. Um, It really it's the the like prosthetic faces that don't hold up, but yeah uh, everything else, um, because, because it's meant to be plausible that the Terminator is actually just a guy, at least to the, to the cops observing him. Um, you know, mostly it's like a big scary guy with a shotgun. You know, there isn't too mm-hmm. much about it. That's like weird and wacky sci-fi stuff. So it just kind of turns into, Two people trying to, you know, run away from another guy, which really is, uh, you know, kind of like a a pretty standard sort of like 80s horror formula, right? Mm -hmm. You see stuff like Nightmare on Elm Street, um, all the Halloween movies. Cobra. uh, Yep. So it's, it's interesting that the Terminator kind of spun out into its own thing and its own genre in a lot of ways. Um, and, and that often gets put into sci-fi where, like, really, it's kind of a slasher horror movie <laughs> um, if you look at it, you know, sort of beat by beat and compare it to, to its contemporaries. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, my number four, The Terminator. Yeah,
0: I, I really think that The Terminator and some people are going to hate me for this, but I think it is the superior of all the Terminator films. I know a lot of people oh. are like uh, the second Terminator is like the best Terminator, but no, it's it's really the first one is the best one.
2: The second one is the wildest and I feel like maybe the most satisfying, but yeah, the original is a better film. And I would tell you about the effects. I watched it with widget last year and Mm -hmm. we were watching the slow, the stop motion sequences. And she's like, the CGI is really good in this. Mm -hmm. And I had to, you know, stop. And we had to talk about how CGI in 1984 wouldn't look like that. And she's like, wait, so that's like a cartoon. And I'm like, Yes, it's like a cartoon and she's like, "Oh, well this is really good." Yeah, um I would I would definitely say
1: that uh Terminator 2 is a better action movie. Mm-hmm. Um but it, like Terminator 2 is sort of like it, it's kind of like the the Star Wars prequels in the sense that somebody came to Cameron and was like, "Hey, what if you got to remake this movie except with 10 times the budget?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And and he did. It's, base, it's the exact same movie with you know just every, every possible scene just cranked up to 11, which is why I think it's a better action movie. But yeah. The Terminator, I think, is a good, like
2: smaller, like personal horror movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Matthew, what do you have as your number four?
2: My number four actually came up in my workplace recently. Uh, because of the nature of our job, we do have to watch uh, usually a local television station. To keep an eye on weather, but if there's no weather going on, we'll just watch, you know, something weird. And, uh, I hit one of the channels and this movie came on and my coworkers were like, what is this? And I'm like, well, first of all, I have to let you know that I was born in 1970, which means I'm squarely in generation X, 1965 to about 1980, basically. And, uh, generation X members of generation X, if you're hearing this for the first time, I'm sorry, but this is in fact the law. Members of Generation X may not pass by my number four, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You must stop and watch that movie by law. it. I'm sorry. That's just Oh, yeah. Johnny
0: is. Depp is so good in that <laughs> movie.
2: You're thinking of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, <laughs> which is a different movie. And also, you can't see my finger right now, but I think you can in your head.
0: No, no, uh, I can't.
2: Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Don't be negative. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971. Yes, 1971 was a regular occurrence in in my childhood because they played it every Easter on like CBS. You would see this movie and it's pretty horrifying in a lot of ways. And when you're really young, you know, the boat sequence and seeing the children horribly mutilated. And there's quite a bit of unintended body horror that's played for laughs in here. But all in all, it's a really good movie. It's held together by an incredible performance by gene wilder just playing everything note perfect when he needs to be sarcastic he's not too sarcastic he's just right and it for me the whole thing is sold when he walks out and all the kids start looking disappointed because he's hobbling with a cane and he looks old and slow and tired and everybody suddenly their their party atmosphere is destroyed and then his cane stops and he keeps going And you see him start to fall, and the crowd gasps. And then Wilder does this forward somersault, flips back up to his feet, and welcomes everybody. That is a perfect encapsulation of the movie. You don't know what you're going to get, but once you do get it, it's better than what you were actually expecting. And again, if you're between the ages of about 40 and about 55, you have to watch it by law. I don't make the rules. I just explain some.
0: Yeah, my youngest son really enjoys this movie a lot. He watches it, I would say, probably twice a year. Uh, I'll just come up and he'll be watching it just because he read the book in, I want to say, second or third grade, probably second grade, um, and just really got a kick out of it. And I was like, well, if you like that, then let's watch, you know, the the Gene Wilder adaptation of this. So it was a Christmas Eve a couple of years ago. We were all uh, vacationing in, in a hotel. And I was just like, hey, let's put this up on the big screen. And we watched it and he's like dad this is such a great movie although it doesn't have everything that the book had and i said yeah a lot of those things have to be taken out cuz they're kind of racist um <laughs> and, but he he just will watch it a couple of times and i've had him watch the the johnny depp uh willy wonka movie and he's like nah it's just it's just not the same and he will he'll go back and watch the the gene wilder uh movie a, a lot so that is one that he if I said yeah. what movie do you want to watch? I mean, he's got a list and I'm sure that one is on it. So.
2: Yeah, the Depp movie is just too frenetic. It, it's like it tries too hard.
0: Well, I think it tries so, too hard to be more um aligned with the book right. than <laughs> it does with you know, than you know, just trying to be its own thing or its own adaptation.
2: That's, that's because Dahl hated the 71 adaptation yeah. so much. Yeah. Hated 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 it. Yep. All
0: right, my number four, also another detective movie. This one, not from Raymond Chandler, Chandler, but from Dashiell Hammett. And this is the 1934 pre-code movie, The Thin Man, starring um, uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy. This is... It's got a lot of comedy in it. It's got a mystery that I think is probably the one of all the Thin Man movies. It is the one that has... A mystery that you can follow along pretty closely, although I do like the whodunit aspect of After the Thin Man, which is the second movie in the series, which honestly is probably the the best one of the entire series. But usually I like to go back to The Thin Man because, like I said, it's pre-code, which means that there's a lot of more sexual innuendo that is uh, allowed to go on. Uh, they are clearly complete lushes in the thin man as opposed to after the code they drink, but they don't drink to excess uh, like they do in the first movie. Um, If anybody listens to it, well, the, the show's not on anymore, but the Nick and Nora Charles um, murder mystery thing that was running on. And I forget what the uh, podcast was, but it was also a live stage play. It's basically based on, on these two Nick and Nora Charles from the thin man series. It is so good. It is so well done. Uh, I kind of, I'm, I'm glad that these two got paired up with one another for a bunch of movies. Uh, I think that they're a, a great couple. Um, w- William Powell uh, plays a Nick Charles, who is an older, now retired police officer or detective, who marries uh, Nora Charles, uh, who is a young heiress. So she's got all this money, and so he basically marries into wealth. And they are back into New York City uh, after living in California, which is where they live. And they come back and Nick is asked to investigate and find a thin man, uh, somebody that is a friend of the family. And it turns into a good murder mystery. I read the book, oh, four or five years ago. And the book just is radically divergent from this film. It's still got the same plot points and the same uh, key elements to it. But, oh, man, there is a part in the book where it just diverges into a whole other story for like two chapters before it comes back in. Um, Now, the interesting thing is Dashiell Hammett, I believe, wrote um, or was one of the co-writers. No, he wasn't the co-writer on this one, but um, he gave his full blessing on this film adaptation from his book. And so it's, it's really good. It's a black and white film. If you have Turner Classic movies, they tend to run a thin man marathon every New Year's Eve and through New Year's Day, but again, it's on my it's on my list. I've, I've purchased them all, so if I'm scrolling down the list and I see The Thin Man, I'm like, yep, I'm going to watch that. That's my number four movie that I can't stop watching. Uh, that is not my last detective movie, though, on on my list. Actually, I think my number three is kind of a detective movie, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Rodrigo, what do you have for your number three?
1: Also sort of a detective movie, but the detective, tech thing gets uh takes kind of a backseat to the the personalities involved mm-hmm. uh, my number three jackie chan chris tucker rush hour right can't
0: R- rush hour or rush hour Two? rush hour okay
1: um rush hour two is not terrible no but there's something about rush hour where i think Uh, Like I feel like we were all discovering this chemistry, Mm -hmm. like as as it happens, it's being as you watch the movie, it's like being created. Whereas by Rush Hour Two, they're already kind of established, right? Yeah,
0: they've got their Um, formula,
1: and that's and that's really what it is. It's that back and forth between Jackie Chan, who's like uh, an adorable cinnamon roll, and Chris Tucker, who is like uh lime um (laughs) and they should go about as well together but you know it, it it works out really well turns out um when you look at brett Radner's filmography to me sometimes it feels like this was the peak um i just like it's good it's snappy um all of the decisions are sort of in favor of like either action or comedy or action comedy. Um, and the movie just kind of rolls along until it, uh, you know, the bad guy is dead and everything's over. And now the two friends, uh, are separated, but you know, they'll see each other again in the sequel. So yeah, my number three rush hour, Uh, of, of course, uh, Absolutely perfect scene, like that little girl singing Mariah Carey mm-hmm. while her like bodyguards are like driving her around. Um, just like so many, so many fantastic little set piece scenes in that.
0: I remember my oldest, he must have been like two or three. I've told this story before. Uh this would be a rush hour two reference though. He was so into that movie for a while that I forget the I forget the circumstance, but he got so mad at me one time that he was crying over something i you know i wouldn't let him do something and all of a sudden he just starts going jackie chan Jackie Chan, like he wanted jackie chan to come and kick his dad's butt because i was so mean to him and i would never forget that i thought it was so funny but yeah i summoned
1: the jackie chan
0: (laughs) yeah i think maybe he thought he could just uh uh wave his magic talisman and jackie chan would appear and i was like no that's a cartoon series that uh that you haven't watched yet so Uh, uh okay matthew what do you have for your number three
2: My number three is, uh, I I like to call it a cautionary tale in not necessarily trusting your friends. Because when this movie came out, a couple of my friends went to see it. Um, Otter Disaster and his friend Paul, he went to see it. And they're like, oh, yeah, we went to see this movie. And I'm like, how was it? Because I was kind of interested in seeing it. This was like 1996. And Paul looked at me and said, if you want to hear the same song a hundred times, go see this movie. So I went, oh, well, maybe I don't want to see that thing you do. And I would like to officially say that Polly was A, wrong, and B, cruel, and C, I did want to see that thing you do. Mm. Um, the other night, I actually hit it at the very beginning. I don't know that I've ever seen the very beginning before. And my whole family was like, have we ever seen the very beginning? Because we know how it ends. We know how everything goes from the point that the band gets picked up by the big label and taken. but. We had never seen the very beginnings, sat, my family and I sat, and watched That Thing You Do from beginning to end, and it's a wonderful movie. Any movie that ends with the American graffiti thing, where you tell them what happened after they grew up, I'm totally down for it. I'm into that. Senator and Mrs. John Blutarski was actually my AOL name. But this movie is so sweet and so heartfelt, and the one thing that I do... Want to point out is if you watch this movie, you will hear the theme song, That Thing You Do, about 10 times, but it evolves throughout the film. The first time you hear it, it's actually slow, like a ballad, and then it speeds up. And each time it becomes different and more complex. And by the time you get to the end of the movie, You've heard it enough that you're like, oh, the version that I hear on the radio every once in a while isn't actually as good as the ones that we're seeing on the television or seeing you know, here on the imaginary television. And I really enjoy the fact that it feels authentic, but also everything in it is entirely made up. All the bands, all the label names, all of the television shows. I think the only real person mentioned in the whole film is Suzanne Plachette. And I kind of respect that. And of course, Tom Hanks holds this whole movie together by sheer force of charisma. I mean, there's a lot of talented actors doing a lot of talented things, but it's Tom Hanks who really sells it, who really puts it all together for me. And seriously, if you haven't seen this movie, I recommend it. Just remember, there's three things that you need to know about this movie. One, Lenny should have been the lead singer all along because the song that Lenny sings is killer Two, Jimmy is a genius, but that's not an excuse for being a jerk. And three, and I think most important Senator and Mrs. John Plutarski. And that's why my number three, that thing you do.
0: All right. Uh, before we get to my number three, let me ask you all a question. Mm. Do you read Sutter Kane? If you don't get that reference then you're kind of out of luck because you means you have not watched my number three in the mouth of madness from John Carpenter. This is a movie that is probably as close to a, like a straight up. So there's a lot of cosmic horror slash Lovecraftian horror movies that are out there. Some of them really push the boundaries of let's just make this gross and crazy to make it gross and crazy. But if you read a lot of of Lovecraft, you know, a lot of times it is uh, somebody who has already gone mad or insane who is telling their story, saying, I promise you everything I'm going to tell you is true. And by the end of the story, you find out that this guy has been locked up in an insane asylum for something wackadoo that he has done. So in the mouth of madness, uh, we meet John Trent, who is being dragged into a uh, mental facility uh, because he's gone insane. He's killed people. And as he recounts his story to the psychiatrist, uh, we kind of learn that the world has started to go crazy and mad because people have been reading this book by this author, Sutter Kane. And then we flash back to how John Trent got into this. He is a um, insurance investigator, so it's somewhat of a detective, and he has been hired by, of all people, uh, Charlton Heston as the book publisher who is trying to tra- track down Sutter Kane because he's gone missing and he might be in this fictitious town that appears in a lot of Sutter Kane novels so this would be very much like a Stephen King kind of author as who Sutter Kane is mm-hmm. um but uh, and so Sam Neill is accompanied by uh the publisher's assistant played by Julie Carmen to go and try and find this town and find out where Sutter Kane is and As the story progresses, I don't want to give too much away, but there's the implication that this whole movie, these characters are actually characters in the Sutter Kane book that he is writing. And so that they're basically trapped to play out all these crazy, insane things. And there's little horrible monsters that show up and weird things and kind of creepy things. I mean, it is I would say as far as the creepy factor goes, it is tamer than Children of the Corn. Um, But it's a lot more scary than, say, Gremlins. Uh, So it's something that I feel like I could have my kids watch this and they would be okay with the, ooh, that was scary kind of stuff. Um, But I don't think that this is something that's going to drive you insane or give you nightmares. I will also say this. The acting in this movie is horrendous. The only saving grace, of course, is Sam Neill. All of the other actors in this movie just are like the worst. And I know Julie Carmen has gone on to do a bunch of other like mid-level movies and a bunch of TV shows, but she's like the worst part of this movie. She just it feels like she can't act. Uh, she changes her attitudes left and right. And and that may be part of what's going on because Sutter Kane is is writing this book and is writing her how he wants. Um, but it gets a, it gets a little weird at times with with her acting. Uh, This is, if you are a fan of John Carpenter, this is the third installment of his Apocalypse Trilogy. Uh, The first one is The Thing, which is about an alien apocalypse. Uh, Then you have Prince of Darkness, which is your religious apocalypse. And then Mouth of Madness is your horrors from beyond um, apocalypse. It's it's good, silly fun. It is, you know, if you want to explore the world of what uh, cosmic horror or Lovecraftian horror is like in film, I really think that this captures a lot of what... Lovecraft writes in his stories or at least with his characters I think this is much better than what you might find in reanimator I think this is much better than what you might find in some of the more recent adaptations of a color out of space this isn't even a, a Lovecraft story but it's the one that has the vibe that I feel is closest to what we should be seeing in Lovecraftian horror so in the mouth of madness from what is it 1995 or something like that uh, is one that it's just like, I'm kind of in a mood for a dopey, scary kind of monster, you know, from beyond kind of thing. And I'll I'll watch Mouth of Madness every single time. So there you go. All right, let us get to, to our number twos. And Rodrigo, what do you have for your number two?
1: Uh, my number two is as much a surprise to me as it would be to anybody else. Um, I had not seen this movie until I started uh, working for my current employer uh, and one of uh, my clients started playing it and played it. Once they got a hold of it, they played it pretty often, um, and every time I just found myself just putting away whatever else I was doing and just watching this movie. Um, and that's uh, Dolores Claiborne. Mm-hmm. So, so another one for Kathy Bates there. Um, yeah, Dolores Claiborne is a Stephen King adaptation, I believe. Yep. And uh, there's nothing uh, supernatural in it, uh, but there's plenty of horrific things. Um, it's a it's a it's, it's a movie that I, I guess is the opposite of that movie that Stephen. Uh, was talking about uh, in the mouth of madness because everybody acts the hell out of this movie. It's like you, like no matter where you look, everybody's just giving this like immense theatrical performance. Um, Kathy Bates, Jennifer Jason lee Judy Parfitt, Christopher Plummer, uh, David Strathern, right? Who's getting a lot of like I feel is getting a lot more buzz now than he was back then. Um like everybody's John C. Riley's in this.
0: Oh really? Um, I forgot that he was in that.
1: Yep. Uh so it's you know, I I already know the the quote unquote twist or the reason or the mystery or why all of these um events are set into motion when I sit down and watch it for the sixth or seventh time. Um but it's just you know it's entertaining it moves very quickly you know it's just people talking to each other for the majority of it um but it just you know it you go and it gives you the information that you need you move on um you know characters questioning the uh the veracity of each other's stories um you also have on top of a murder mystery also a family story um, so it's, uh, it's, it's good. Um, you know, uh, content warning, there's some sexual abuse in it. So, uh, be, be aware of that. But yeah, uh, Dolores Claiborne, my number two.
0: Hmm, very good. Uh, Matthew, what do you have for your number two? Hmm. We don't have a Matthew anymore.
2: Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The mouth of madness sure. got her, a- Yes. Oh. No, my number two is a movie called Muted. It's No, that's not true. There's no movie called Muted. And if there is, don't watch it. There have to be.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a movie called Mute.
2: My number two was not on the list until this morning. My number two was going to be 8 Mile. Uh, But I realized two things. One, I only like the last 10 minutes of 8 Mile. That last rap rap battle. battle? And number two, yeah. Number two, Otter asked me this morning uh, on facey space what's your favorite movie made the year you were born now I was born in 1970 all of my favorite movies of that era were either 1969 like Midnight Cowboy or 1972 73 so I was really mad until I found my number two on my list of movies from 1970 it is a movie that I will watch every single time and no matter when I come into this movie I will stop and I will watch mash and if you've ever seen the television show mash first of all it's a good show second of all forget everything because this is not really the same thing Uh, mash is reputedly based on true stories of uh, korean war medics and it's based on a number of things kind of put together But most importantly, it's based on some really, really good actors doing some terrible things. It has not aged well in terms of race, in terms of gender. It hasn't really aged well in terms of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe, uh, Maybe some homophobia in there. But it really is an interesting look at 1970. And... Much like the television show isn't really about the Korean War, MASH, the movie, isn't really about the Korean War. But it's fascinating to watch. It's got Elliot Gould, who's one of my favorites. It's got uh, Kiefer Sutherland's father in it, who's really pretty awesome. A whole bunch of characters that you feel like, oh, yeah, I totally know these people. I've seen them on television. Nope. No, I haven't. But if you've never seen it, be, be aware of two things. One, it's a Robert Altman movie, which means there's about 27 different strands of plot kind of intertwining like a big thing. And two, there was a lot of editing and a lot of executive meddling. So certain points in the film don't actually make sense because you don't see the thing that sets up the thing until scenes after the thing is set up. So there are some problems with it. There is some racism, I will definitely tell you that, and there is some sexism, so if those are things for you, don't watch it. But I always sit and I watch MASH because I really enjoy the way it's put together, and I'm not a huge Altman fan as a rule, but boy, this one works for me. And I'm I'm not saying that I've ever told somebody, just get out of the way, we're the pros from Dover, we're here to help, but I'm also not not saying that.
0: I think if I remember, the only one, the only actor that transitioned over to the TV series was um, Radar. I think he's the only one that's in the, yeah, he's in the movie and in the TV series. But I think there aren't any, I don't think anyone else transferred over.
2: No other actors, but several other characters transitioned. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Including one whose name I'm not comfortable saying anymore, Dr. Jones, who was actually removed from the show because... They believed at the time that an African-American doctor in Korea was not realistic, so they took him off the show. They have since discovered that there were, in fact, African-American doctors in the MASH units in the 50s, so they shouldn't have taken him off the show, but what are you going to do?
0: Yeah. All right. My number two is one that shouldn't come as a huge surprise to people. It is the greatest X-Men movie that you have ever seen. It blows any other X-Men movie out of the water, plus it's also a heist movie, so you've got that going for it. And even though it had poor critical reception, it still made $30 million over its budget in the box office. I don't know why there was never a sequel made to this. Tasha Robinson over at the AV Club, this is on the Wikipedia page, Tasha Robinson gets a a quote that says Tasha Robinson of the AV club was more positive towards the film, giving it a B plus superhero fans will likely be into push just for the cool factor of watching embattled heroes and villains uh, in a tense war of wits, wills, and skills. Uh, The broader audience is less likely to come along for the ride, but this particular gateway drug is at least an ambitious uh, uh, has ambition and brains going for it as well as the usual spastic style. Um, You know, if you are someone that hated, Uh, The uh, the last two X-Men movie, I think you would really dig Push. It is literally about people with uh, abilities that uh, allow them to do things very much like mutants do in the X-Men. It's set in in China uh, or Taiwan. I can't remember um, which one. Maybe it's Taiwan. But um, it is a heist film about finding a drug that will turn more people in, uh, give more people these abilities. It's not a great movie, but it has all of your Marvel, your greatest Marvel uh, characters in it. It's got Chris Evans in it. It's got, uh, uh, what's his name, Uh, Honsu, uh, Digimon Honsu. I don't know how you say his name. I apologize.
2: I think it's Jimon Honsu.
0: Yes. It's also got, um, uh, what's her name, from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in it. Uh, And like there's like four or five other people who end up going on to be... uh, Character actors or villains in Marvel movies. In fact, uh, I think the villain Jacket is one of the uh, one of the bad guys in this movie. Um, so it's 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 really got basically your your Marvel characters wrapped up into this. I think it came out probably at the wrong time. It came out in 2009. Yeah. Had this movie been done, and I'm not saying it had to, has to have a lot of changes to it. Sure, there's a little, maybe a little bit more clarity that needs to come into play, especially when it comes to um, the heist part. But if it were made today, this people would be going nuts for this movie. And I think if you have never seen Push, uh, give it a chance, because if you're into superhero movies, this is definitely it. And it's not set in any Marvel Universe or DC Universe or anything like that. It is its own thing. Even though uh, I, I I knew that there was a comic book adaptation, or not a comic book adaptation, a prequel uh, to this film, I didn't realize it was written by Mark Bernardin, who is kind of a big name right now. So if you want to go back and find some of his earlier work, you can go check out the Push uh, miniseries that, uh, that he wrote, or co-wrote. But Push, not a great movie, but man, if I just want something dumb and fun... Push is definitely one to watch, and that is why it is my number two. All right, we have reached the top of the charts this week, and Rodrigo, what is in your number one position?
1: Uh, My number one is a movie that I had seen a few times uh, when I was younger, uh, maybe once or twice, or uh, maybe two or three times, uh, and I enjoyed it, I thought it was good, but I was never uh, forced to watch it over and over again. Um, now that I sort of am, um, mm-hmm. I've actually started enjoying it a lot more. Some movies, uh, every like, I keep watching them and I hate them more every time. Mm-hmm. Um, some movies that I like cross that line into me not liking them. Uh, but uh, this movie went from it like eh, okay to like I actually really like this movie, uh, and that's ghost oh, yeah. patrick Swayze, to mm-hmm. Moore, more uh oh. supernatural love story um and really it's i think that ghost has aged well because there's this inherent sort of class thing going on in ghost um Patrick Swayze's character uh, spoiler alert for 1990 <laughs> uh, gets killed and he is skilled by a Latino man and then needs to rely on a, a black fortune teller who starts out as a, um, you know, starts, it, it kind of starts out as her as a hustler, but then she actually has the ability to communicate with them. Um, and just this thing where, like, it turns out that the, the man who killed him is also working for, like, a rich white banker. Um, uh, You know, Ghost doesn't spend a lot of time examining those things, but those things are there to find, and they play out in a good way. Like, they actually, when you watch it, You can read, actually, the one character that literally says it, uh, like uh, Whoopi Goldberg's character, um, seems so mortified not just to be pulled into supernatural nonsense, but to be pulled into white supernatural nonsense.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And it, you know, again, there's just like sort of all of this, Uh, stuff that was going on in the 80s and these are tropes that work their way into the movie but because the movie plays the way it does because the main character is dead pretty much immediately um, a lot of those things are kind of turned on their head so um, yeah I end up watching Ghost and um, you know one of the movies that almost made it into the list American Beauty um, every time I watch it, I get something else from it. Now I have watched it so many times that it's not really on this list anymore because now i get now I'm actually tired of it again <laughs>
0: um,
1: but so my my top movie now that I sit down to watch to see what's going on to see what else I can get out of it is ghost and and I think it's there there's lots of again, even if it wasn't you know purposely put there by the filmmaker. It's it's stuff that was going on as we were sort of clicking over into the 90s, um, which is, you know, when I started becoming conscious of media. So Mm -hmm. it's it, you know, it's again, it's got a lot of stuff for me to to look into. So, uh, yeah, my number one is Ghost.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd have to go back and look at uh, movies prior to Ghost that depict the negative side of being a spirit, you know, basically being dragged down to uh, Heckville. Um, right. because post ghost, I have seen a lot of movies and TV shows where those who are being dragged off to Heckville, uh, basically have those ghosts and shadows, you know, coming out of the, out of the walls and the ground and just sure. sucking people down below. And I don't know if that is a ghost influence or if there's an influence be- before that.
1: But, oh uh, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, like ghost did it like. Ghost did it boldly, right? It's like yeah. you look at the, the special effects in Ghost and they're not they don't quite hold up. Mm-hmm. Especially the like tra- like characters like uh moving through solid objects and stuff. You can see some like masking and stuff going on. Um but uh I think I think Ghost just was like, yep, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna Roger Rabbit the heck out of this. Like we're gonna <laughs> yeah. like make some like hand animated effects both for like shiny goodness and spooky badness and it it works it's 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 if you just take a step back and you approach it as like this movie is stylized the special effects of this movie are stylized
0: mm-hmm.
1: um it uh it, it still works really well
0: yep cool matthew what do you have for your number one
2: My number one is a very important movie to me. It's a movie that has come up in a previous episode of Top 5, and it hurt my feelings so bad that I cried for an hour. Metaphorically speaking, not literally. But my number one is a movie that I have once again started seeing every week or two. And I don't know if it's just it's a good movie. I think it is. It may just be in people's rotation But for about the last three or four months, you haven't been able to swing a cat on the weekend without running into Walter Hill's 1979 opus, The Warriors. And The Warriors is a movie that should not work. It is a movie where our protagonists are a criminal street gang of jerks and and murderers and stabberators. And it shouldn't work, yet somehow it does. And basically, you have the story of... Nine gang members who cross New York to go to a meeting that ends up being, you know, a complete uh, S-word show. They get blamed for a crime and they have to run 30 miles back home to the other side of the city, all the while being attacked by other gangs. Shouldn't work. It's it's not a movie that should, that premise, really draw you in, and yet somehow it does. And it lots of this movie has not aged well either, and yet somehow I sit and I watch it. And I really enjoy the cast. Uh, It's got uh, James Remar, really young James Remar. It's got the guy from Xanadu. Um, It's got some really, really talented actors who were never in anything else. And the main cast, basically the seven people that we see most of the movie, four of those seven people are people of color throughout the whole film. And they are driving this plot in a way that you're kind of like, oh, yeah. I, I don't ever see that in movies. And even now in the 21st century, you're like, Oh, that's kind of cool. But I think the best part of this movie is always going to be the late Lynn Thigpen, the boss from, uh, the, the, uh, Carmen San Diego show <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> playing a DJ, a, yeah. a DJ who secretly sends out messages to yeah, the gangs.
0: That is really the best part of the, of the movie.
2: And you never see her face. You just see, just her, see her lips and her yeah. microphone. And she's like all the way. She's like, I've got another communique boppers. And I'm just like, oh, that is so beautiful. But yeah. you get to a point of this film where I'm not sure if it's in any way authentic to a gang experience of 1979. And I know that, you know, it's not authentic to anything I've ever seen, but there's something so enjoyable about it. And you get to the end, they get back home and they get attacked anyway. And it seems like all is lost. And then there's this big moment. It's actually based on uh, the Anabasis, which is this uh, ancient story of soldiers having to cross through enemy territory. And it's really good. I don't know why it's really good. Uh, don't well, watch because
0: it's it's based on a thousand-year-old uh, story.
2: Partly that, and partly you know you have really interesting things going on, and you know there's a fight with a gang on roller skates in a men's room. You you can't underestimate the fun of a fight on roller skates in a men's room and of course uh, the mimes in baseball uniforms chasing you through the night there is nothing scarier than a clown after midnight so imagine a clown with a weapon dressed up for some reason in a new york yankees costume running after you frenetically in the dark of night you will love this movie i tell you and if you don't love it i'll guarantee you this if your movie breaks in half you get to keep both halves
0: uh, the only thing scarier than a clown at midnight, Matthew, is mm-hmm.
2: that clown that's right behind you. <gasps> that's Mr. Dots.
0: Oh, OK. That's
2: well, not a clown. That's We just have uh,
0: reached the top of my list. And if push is my number two, I bet you can take a guess on what is my number one movie that I can't stop watching.
2: Wish you would step back from that ledge, my friend. You could. Can I
1: can I just say that when Stephen said that this was like his favorite X-Men movie, I really thought it was going to be Matilda.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Matthew, you are absolutely correct. My number one movie that I cannot stop watching is Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. (laughs) Now, if you have not uh, seen Inherent Vice, this is it's a detective story. Uh, about um, uh, Detective, uh, what's his name? Sporto is his last name, Uh, Doc Sporto. And this takes place in 1970. So we're in California. It's happening right at the end of the free love movement. It's right at the end. He's a hardcore hippie marijuana smoker. Let me do all the drugs kind of guy. And he has been tasked with, well, that's the interesting part. It's hard to tell what he's tasked with because it starts out as him trying to find what has happened to his missing ex-girlfriend, which then turns into a whole thing involving international drug dealers. And parts of it are incredibly funny. This movie has uh, Josh Brolin as the, um, as the police detective who's always giving Doc a hard time, just like beating the crap out of him just because he's a, because he's a hippie. And
2: Dr.
0: cable. I know that guy. Yeah. And I this is probably the most dangerous movie for me. Because literally, if I scroll by it and I see, there's more than there's more than a 60% chance that I'm just going to just scrolling by, see that and just click play, just out of habit. It's fascinating. It's got um, um, Joaquin Phoenix. As as the lead as Doc, and as I mentioned, it's got Josh Brolin in it. It's got Owen Wilson in it as a um, undercover informant for many government agencies. It's got Reese Witherspoon as Doc's current on again off again girlfriend who works in the DA's office. It's got Benicio del Toro in it. It's got Martin Short and probably the funniest bit of the entire movie. Um, It's just got some big names for a movie that didn't get a lot of. Um, people going to see it. I wouldn't say oh, it's a bomb, uh, but it's based on it's based on um, Thomas Pynchon's book of the same name, and the book is, I think, rather hard to get through, just because he writes things so in so deeply. But even Paul Thomas Anderson, as a filmmaker, likes to layer all sorts of different things into his films that you can read on a bunch of different levels as well. And I had probably watched this movie six or seven times and every time i watch it i get something new out of it but it's probably on my sixth or seventh viewing of this film that i was like and i don't i don't want to give i mean i'll give it away because i'm i'm sure if you haven't seen inherent vice by now I'm, I'm sure i'm not going to convince you to view it even though you probably should but there is a character who i think is just a figment of doc's imagination throughout the entire piece And it was only, like I said, on the sixth or seventh viewing where I'm watching this going, oh, I noticed that she never interacts with anyone else. And so the big question becomes, especially in the final one of the final scenes between Josh Brolin and Joaquin Phoenix, uh, there's this real question of, has this whole thing been a drug hallucination or what parts are real and what parts aren't? And, you know, should we. Should we take what the story we have been presented as fact or is this something that is just a fun little drug trip. But Inherent Vice, this came out in 2014. Like I said, it is the most dangerous movie on my list because if I even see the poster for it, I want to watch it. In fact, I'm looking at the, the wiki page right now and looking at the poster and I'm like, oh man, I hope we can get the rest of our podcast finished up tonight because I kind of want to watch this movie now. And it's, it's a long movie. It's like, I think it's like two hours long. Um, the budget's super low, especially when you think of all the names that are in this. $20 million for this movie. 150 minutes long. Um, unfortunately, like I said, didn't do so well with the box office. Only made $14 million on this. But seriously, if you like detective stories, but you want to see it through a drug-fueled haze, Inherent Vice is so, 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 so good. And you might uh, end up uh, watching it every time it, it pops up on, on your radar. I think I'm definitely going to stay up late and watch this tonight, which is probably a bad thing. But anyway... There you go. That is my number one movie that I can't stop watching. We've listened to some great ones from Matthew and from Rodrigo. And now it is your turn, dear listener. It's time for you to point your um, your mobile device or your web browser to Majorspoilers.com. And you're going to want to check out uh, the post. And then in the comment section, you can share your top five list of movies that you can't stop watching. Or even better, you can head over to our Discord server. Yes, we've got one of those. Totally free to join. And you can hang out with some other great people in the top five channel and you can share your top five movies that you can't sh- uh, stop watching. Other people's going to put their um, theirs in there as well. Carl, I'm sure, is is tabulating the new rankings and saying saying something like this is the 37th time that Steven has mentioned the movie Push in top five, which I always find fascinating. So keep it up, Carl. Here's the other thing that is a probably a good deal for you. If you've been sitting on the fence and you've been like, man, I really want to support major spoilers on their Patreon page but I just need some little push yeah which is my number two um (laughs) check this out during the month of April and only during the month of April if you sign up for the yearly subscription the yearly membership okay they're gonna charge you but during the month of April they're only gonna charge you for 10 months you're gonna still get 12 months so that's two months free so You can go over and sign up at any level. If you sign up for the yearly, you can still sign up for month by month if you want. But if you sign up for the yearly subscription, you will get 16% off, which is the equivalent of two months free, only during the month of April. Don't wait. It certainly helps us out and allows us to keep shows like Top 5 going. We don't want to have to cancel this show. We don't want to have to eject one of the participants on this show because we can't afford them. But, um... Help us out. Head over to patreoncom spoilers for more information, unlock a bunch of bonus content, and uh, we'll be back next time because everybody loves a list. This podcast is copyright 2021 by Major Spoilers Entertainment LLC.